Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. I'm Tony Jones, your host. And this is a different kind of episode. No no edgy uh, intro music, no funny banter with my producer, Brandon. Uh, That's because today I bring you my conversation with my friend Darren Patrick. It took place on April 23rd, and Darren died two weeks later. Um, of course, I you know didn't know that at the time when we inter- when we uh, conversed, and it's been a lot to process. Uh, as I'm sure it is for a lot of you. Darren and I met in the late 90s when we were, you know, both part of a group of Gen X pastors who were trying to rethink um, Christianity and how to do church in America. But by by the mid aughts, our two groups had gone different directions theologically and it uh, unfortunately regrettably become more rivals than anything else um, but we circled back toward friendship in uh, around 2009 and then again in 2014 was when we really kind of rekindled friendship became um, more um, communicative with one another. I mean, just sharing texts and getting on the phone once in a while, which which we do talk about in our conversation here. Um, but we both had, we both went through some very difficult times. First me, and he reached out to me. I have those texts. And then, um, then he went through what he calls his implosion, and I have the text where I reached out to him during that. And then um, if, if you're new, which I'm sure a lot of you are, to the Reverend Hunter podcast, this is a podcast where I talk to people about finding transcendence and God in the outdoors. When Darren saw on social media that I had started this podcast, he reached out to me and said he wanted to come on because Darren uh, was a hunter, and he knew that was a shared interest of ours. Um, and so we booked, a, we booked a time for the interview that I then canceled because of the pandemic, uh, since I couldn't go back into the studio, and I didn't really have the right gear to record stuff at home yet, and stuff like that. And I said, you know, I've, I'll just reschedule with you down the road when I can get back in the studio. And he texted me and said, I really want to come on your podcast. Like, let's do this. Hey, bro, when are we going to do, are we going to do this podcast thing or not? I really want to come on and talk about my relationship with my dad and how important it is for me to get out in the woods. Really? I mean, I have this text from him and I said, thank God. I, I, followed his lead, and I said, all right, let's do it. And we we did this, uh, we recorded this conversation on April 23rd, as I said. And then just two weeks later, 
to the day he died. And I'm so glad uh, we have this recording. Um, some people, some of you probably uh, will not be ready yet to listen to this, to listen to hear Darren's voice, to hear him talk about making future plans to you know hunt with his son or to go on a pheasant hunt with me. It, it's been hard for me to listen. I listened a couple times, um, and it's not easy. And so, if if you're not ready to listen to it yet, uh, you know, I encourage you not to, and and then and not also not to feel guilty about not listening to it yet. Um, I did send the audio to his church, Seacoast, where he was a teaching pastor, and they spent a few days with it and got back to me and said. Um, and, and they're kind of speaking for, you know, they're also speaking for Darren's widow, Amy, that they were okay with it coming out, and they thought it was a, a good part of his legacy. And in fact, uh, the founding pastor of that church, Greg Surratt, is the next voice you're going to hear with mine, because before we get to the conversation with Darren, uh, Greg and I just recorded a short intro conversation between the two of us. I wanted to hear, you know, how he's doing and what we can do to help support Darren's family. So you're going to you're going to see that or hear that, sorry, you're going to hear that here coming up um in the next moments and following that conversation with Greg, you will hear my conversation with Darren. Thank you for listening. And God bless. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast on this really somber day, man. I honestly, like even starting to talk to you here, I can feel the emotion rising in my throat. Um, Thanks, Tony. I, uh, I appreciate it. How, uh, how are you doing and, and how are Amy and the kids doing? Um, I can tell you about me. <laughs> uh, I can only guess about Amy and the kids. I mean, I, I talk to them every day, yeah. uh, and Amy is amazing, amazingly strong. She really is. You went and spent some time with them, right? I did. I did. Right, right after I got the word, I uh, got on an airplane and went to St. Louis and uh, spent a couple of days there. Uh, but she's amazing. Uh, you know, kids, it's tough. Yeah, uh, I've been grieving uh, almost unlike anything I've done since my mother died years ago. Uh, just processing the whole thing uh, hit me very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, I've read and, and in fact, I even reference it in the, in this interview with Darren. I, I read the three-part interview that Greg Stetzer, Ed Stetzer did with you, Greg, uh, as well as with Amy and with Darren. Um, and we'll point people to that. But what led you and Darren together at this stage of his life in these latter years? You know, it, uh, it started with, uh, just a almost chance meeting, uh, that I had for a lunch with he and Mark Driscoll several years ago, and Darren uh, and I exchanged 
numbers, you know, like you do. Yeah. Darren yeah. looks at me and he says, so are you going to be one of these guys that actually answer my phone when I call and, or answer your phone when I call? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, you know, that's kind of arrogant. I mean, why, why do you say that? And prejudging me just a little bit. Uh, but looking back, you know, he was looking for a friend. He really was. And maybe somebody just a little bit ahead of him. And uh, so our paths crossed uh, several times. You know, he he was a part of Acts 29. Yeah. And I uh, helped to form ARC, which is a church planting organization also. And so we we kind of connected and then we, we, we became friends. Uh, and then he called me. Uh, when the whole situation went down with the journey and he said, I'm in trouble. Would you be my pastor? And it kind of escalated from there. You know, I, um, I, as we do these days, I I was like doing some digital archeology span on my relationship with Darren and like looking back through the text messages we shared. And one of them, he reached out to me during my lowest worst time, which we talk about in the interview. Um, and I reached out to him, and it was interesting. His response to me was, I'm just so sad that my sin is causing so much pain in people. And all I could really say was, man, we all sin, and you know, I'm here for you, that kind of thing. Uh, it took a toll on him, what he went through, and yet... He came back, one of the things he and I talk about is he came back into ministry with you. It's not something I've done, but he did do that. Uh, what was it like to, you know, be co-workers in the gospel for these last couple of years, or last year year or two? Yeah, a couple of years. Uh, it was amazing. Um, I love, like I think everybody else does, or most people do, a good comeback story. And uh, Darren was shamed so much. Hmm. just his own shame. And then the process he went through was so flawed. Um, uh, and there was so much shame that came out of that, uh, not throwing rocks at the journey by any means. They were so gracious and, and generous, but the the process was, was really a flawed process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Darren, uh, th- there were several times uh, that I told my wife, I said, you know what, if Darren was one of my boys, I'd pull him out of this thing because I don't think it's helpful to him. He, t- I think he says that in the interview, doesn't he? That, or maybe I can't remember if he says that in the interview or offline with that. You actually did kind of tell him, dude, <laughs> pull out of this. This is killing you. And he was like, "No, I have to stick this out." Well, he had seen. You know, we'd all seen, you know, guys that had blown it in various ways and um, not really take an inward look at, you know, where have I, where did I go off the rails? And he wanted to be one who, um, stuck it out. He, he, it was hard. It was really, really hard, but, uh, he really did think that his story could be helpful to other people. And, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the joys I've had over the last couple of years is just helping him to, um, get a platform and access to, uh, other folks that he could share his story. And he was so open, so real with all of that. And uh, it was very helpful. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, he and I had a, he, I mean, first he reached out to me, uh, I think through social media, once he saw I had this podcast that was kind of about hunting and the outdoors life. And and I knew we shared that in common 
he reached out to me and we booked it. But then once COVID hit and I couldn't go into the studio anymore and I already had a couple interviews kind of already recorded. And so I, I was like, Hey man, let's postpone. And once I can get back in the studio, we'll get better quality. And he said, no, I, like, let's record this. I really want to talk. And he particularly said, I want to talk about my father and the, you know, the, how the broken relationship with my father, I think, contributed to my implosion, as he called what happened to him at the journey. Um, he did, yeah, he, he wanted to talk about it, which is so interesting because, man, I don't really want to talk about what happened with me. And it's so hard and raw. Uh, how, you know, you were with him. He talked about it on your podcast. Um, it's the pinned tweet on his on his Twitter account, and I we're going to have that in the show notes too. What was that like for him to talk about that and start to open up about that? It had to be raw. Yeah, at first uh, he was very nervous about it. Um, I, you know, in nervous, I I don't know that Darren. Uh, ever really was that concerned about how he would come off in it. Uh, he hmm. was concerned that maybe he wouldn't be honoring enough to those that were with him in the process, even, you know, uh, that might've contributed uh, negatively to the process. He he wanted to be sure that, uh, uh, well, he was more concerned about that than he was daring to be honest with you. Interesting. And I, I think that, uh, it really excited him, if that's a good word. I don't know. It's exciting to share dirty laundry, but it it, it made him feel um, fulfilled that maybe he could help somebody else that was walking through. And and let me tell you something. After he would share his story, uh, his phone would blow up with people who say thanks and hey, here's where I am. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Um, you've listened to this conversation between him and me that we're about to play here. What what did you think as you heard it? It had to be, uh, grie- you know, add to your grief in some ways and maybe comforting. I've listened to it a few different times, tried to make sense of it. Um, you got any reflections on on this conversation that he and I had a couple weeks ago. Yeah. First of all, thanks for doing it. Oh yeah. You you could not have known, you know, the, um, the timeliness of the circumstances or anything else. And, uh, you know, it was Darren. I, I, I was in the midst of a really, really sad day, uh, when, um, I got access to, you know, the, the advanced Mm -hmm. copy of, podcast and uh i didn't know i didn't know if i wanted to hear it you know yeah uh, because you're hearing darren and it's so fresh it was life-giving that's the word i'll give it Hmm. Uh, and it was it was darren in his environment where you mixed ministry with hunting you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) a a little baseball yeah and a little baseball and rubbed it in on him see i'm a cubs fan Uh uh-huh i'm sorry yeah, no, well, you know, anybody can have a bad century, but <laughs> yeah, he and I would go back and forth on Cubs and Cardinals and we went to yeah. Cubs Cardinals games and all that. But anyway, the podcast was, uh, I don't know how it could be any better. Um, 
at the same time, uh, it was confusing it, and it yeah. will continue to be. It's gotta be. And I, I, I want to express my gratitude to you and the staff at Seacoast and, you know, by proxy to Amy for listening to it and basically giving me the blessing to say, we can go ahead and release this now. And I'm sure I, I, my hope is my prayer is it will be a blessing for people. It will be hard. I know. Like I remember when my dad died a couple of years ago, I kept uh, two voicemails on my phone from him and I honestly never could listen to him. I kept thinking I was going to listen to him, but I just didn't know what hearing his voice would do to me. And I, I archived them and never did listen to him. So I'm sure it will be raw for some people. Some people won't be able to probably listen to it, at least not right now. But um, I do hope it gives, you know, people some insight into who he was and his great loves of the gospel uh, and of his kids and of his wife and of his ministry and of, and of, and of hunting and baseball as well. Yeah, if I uh, would put myself in his shoes, um, really, it's a great way to be remembered. And mm. uh, so, thank you again. Uh, I could tell that uh, there was a, a real camaraderie there. And yeah. uh, I know a little bit about the group that you guys uh, kind of <laughs> heard of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's famous. Yeah. Yeah. Infamous, maybe. Infamous. 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 <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, um, you know, he tried to bring those two competing groups together, um, and then he and I both, you know, had personal issues that precluded that real reconciliation, which is sad and will just be some undone work for us that only, you know, the Spirit of God will have to um, weave those threads back together, um, but he tried and that was what was so interesting to me about him was he had no there was no reason for him to reach out to me and say i want us x29 guys to get together with you emergent village guys and see if we can't make this thing right again um when he did that man i i still have that text when he reached out to me it blew my mind it, it started so with i ha i have to apologize you know can we get on the phone i need to apologize to you and the apology was for there had been some leadership changes at Acts 29, and, and he was reaching out to say, I'm sorry I let our, our theological differences drive a wedge between us. Can we bring it all back together? Um, That's so Darren, to be honest yeah. with you. That's the Darren that I knew in the last couple of years. Um, you know, our uh, our worlds weren't the same as your worlds, but I I traveled in a totally different stream than he did and he he was always wanting hey let's bring this together let's mm -hmm. you know there, there there's more that we agree on than what we disagree on. and it doesn't matter its relationship anyway and that wasn't always the case it was theology first and then relationship and whether it's uh, good or bad i think it's good uh he flipped that in uh, yeah. in the last few years uh before we transition into uh, this conversation I had with Darren. Tell us, Greg, what can people do if they want to support his family at this time? Yeah. Um, you can go to 
seacoast.org. And um, you can probably get to it from the main page, but if you front slash grief, there's a whole um, section there uh, about Darren and how you can support Darren's family. What we've done is we've set up a, uh, you know, one of these giving things in mm-hmm. all of the, all of the money that goes there. There's, there's not even a, a service charge on that. All of the money that goes there goes to the family. And so uh, anybody that wants to help can do it in that way. Seacoast dot org. I hope a lot of people do that. I know a lot of people already have. Um, Pastor Greg, thank you so much for your love of Darren for coming on here and um, sharing a little bit about your relationship with him. Thanks, Tony. All right. Take care. Once again, my sincere thanks to Greg for coming on the podcast. And now here is my conversation with Darren Patrick. Hey Darren, I want to uh, I want to start with a thought experiment. You you good with that? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you and I lived in the Middle Ages, which one of us would have burned the other one at the stake? Mm. <laughs> I mean, could could there be a simultaneous burning? That <laughs> that feels like that feels right. And because we I, each because are I'm, on, we each are on different pyres, and we just toss matches at each other till till the other one starts. Off. I would win. I would win because I'm fatter. It would take me longer to burn, so I think I would win. Dude, I just want to let. Okay, I want to let listeners know. This is this is my recollection of our friendship. It was it was very short lived. I mean, I think we're friends, but our our plans of like actually getting together in person here here's my recollection okay okay you and you and i had a mutual friend who um was kind of a bad dude and uh he turned on me and and my posse first like we're kind of in for people who aren't familiar with this you and i come from kind of different posses of like gen x pastors might say that Mm-hmm. And this this uh, mutual friend, he kind of he he was part of an organization you were in. He went down in flames, and then I remember I remember I was out in my yard, and I think I was like picking weeds. Like this is how vivid this memory is. I remember where I was standing on the side of my house when you called me. I think you texted me and said, "Can we talk?" and and I called you, and you said. Um, hey, that guy was really responsible for the rift between your posse and my posse. I'd really like to heal that. And I speak for some other guys. They want to heal it too. Can we maybe think about, you know, getting together, doing some stuff together, maybe even doing some public events together. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am totally down with that. That would be awesome. And maybe you and I emailed once or twice after that. and then. Uh, I didn't hear from you for a long time. <laughs> and yeah. that's when your life blew up. My life also yeah. blew up in that same, uh, in that same period of time di- in different ways, you and I, but we both went through a real time of e- extreme trial. And then I guess in the last couple of years through social media and stuff, we've circled back uh, to being in contact with one another. 
and we, we share a love of hunting and, and ministry and stuff like that. But anyway, I, I just think, I, I wonder if you, do you have a, uh, is that how you recollect it? Um, and, and I don't know if you can put a finer point for listeners on, you know, what at, what at the time in like, I don't know, 2003 or 2005, we all thought was so important theologically that we had to uh, basically excommunicate one another, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, I think you're right on that recollection. I mean, we, we met up a few times at various conferences. We'd be speaking Mm -hmm. at things, you know, and, uh, new have so many, so many mutual friends. Yeah. Um, so many mutual friends, but yeah, I, I look back, I frankly, um, I'm just outright embarrassed at, um, just a lot of that nonsense division. I, I think there's some important issues that, you know, historically the church has divided over, but it, it, it feels like to me when I look back, there was a lot of uh, brand uh, building, uh, a lot of uh, garnering of the ev- the evangelical and progressive market share. Uh, I, I think there was a lot of crazy and all that, and and which I complete uh, completely owned my part of. <laughs> I was a part of that, and. So I think there was a lot of that, but I, I, you know what I, you know what I miss, um, and I think I think w- where we really missed out was, man, just the loss of friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And since since my implosion, I have come to believe that that is really um, the the essence of Christianity. We think about the Trinity, right? I mean, yeah. It's 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 a it's a it's a community of divinity. And I think we are supposed to emulate that. And I just, man, that that's what I hate. I hate, I hate that I don't talk to Rob Bell anymore. I hate that I don't talk to Brian or, or uh, even, you know, Doug and, you know, just some of those sweet memories we shared. Um, you know, th- th- those were great. And even some guys from my, from my old tribe that I don't talk to. I just think uh, doctrine uh, that divides friends probably isn't good doctrine. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. I, I well, I just want to say to to you publicly that I mean I I hope you can tell from me just like having such a vivid physical memory of of when you called me that day when we talked it it really had an impact on me. It was out of the blue. I did not expect it because in those years um our two tribes had really yeah, like you say, you know, we, we'd done a lot of theological posturing both sides. And, you know, I've, uh, for me too, um, it was, it was like the, uh, I got bitten by the hand. What, what was it? I, the hand that bit me, I was, fe- I got bitten by the hand I was feeding. No, no, the hand. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> like yeah. I made a, I made a, uh, I made a decent living and, and really, you know, you're saying chasing after like celebrity and stuff. And I've actually read some of your, um, like I read an interview with you, um, in, on Christianity today's website with Ed Stetzer, where you talk about that chasing celebrity. And I was doing the same thing. I was doing it through a lot through blogging and I got huge numbers whenever I would blog about Acts 29 or about Mark Driscoll. You know, on the other hand, I got huge numbers whenever I blogged about Rob Bell, you know, 
Um, and then of course that was the stuff that came back to bite me. That's what I'm trying to say. It, it, it came back to bite me that I was like this, uh, I'm this feisty blogger or whatever. And then it turned out that it was that very same kind of thing that brought me down, um, so low and was so hard when people on the internet came after me doing the, basically the same thing. You know, they were trying to like get eyeballs and get page views, which is exactly what I had been doing for 10 years. And, uh, yeah, a lot, lot of regrets looking back on that. Yes, on that yes. time. So, um, t- you know, I I know you said just because we've been texting about it a little bit that you wanted to talk a little bit. I I know that on your own podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes, that's one of the places where you um, really talked very openly and candidly. I listened to that episode uh, about what you call your implosion. Um, but you know, it's been like a year since maybe that you started that podcast. And since you were interviewed in Christianity today, um, where, where do you stand now looking back on it? Like what's, what's going on in your heart and mind? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a confusing, um, I mean, I think you can appreciate this, Tony. I mean, it's a very confusing thing to, be in and around um, pastoral ministry, uh, but also have your hand in some other things. And so I think for me, you know, it has been a year. And uh, since I told my story, I guess publicly, it's been over uh, four years now since kind of the implosion. Um, But I, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I heard, I heard some guys say this and I was too young to appreciate it at the time, but he's like, you know, um, I just, I really want to spend the most time with the people that, uh, are going to be at my funeral. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. And, and, and specifically those who'll be carrying my casket and, uh-huh. um, or, or, or on the other side, I'll be carrying their casket. I'll be at their funeral. So yeah. for me, I think there's just been a narrowing, uh, a, a, a right pruning of relationships. I mean, you know this, Tony, when you fail um, and, you know, we can certainly um, there's always, there's always multiple people involved in failure, but I think I, I've heard you own your failure. I, I've, I've tried to own my failure, my mm-hmm. part. Um, like you really find out who your friends are um, when, when everything's blowing and going and you're selling books and you're speaking at conferences and people can, use you to um, in, in either enrich or, in, in, you know, uh, make themselves, uh, their platform bigger. You really don't know who your friends are in some ways. Well, when you fail and, and then you, you publicly share that and, and are open about that, uh, boy, you really find out like the kind of people that you really want to be around. And so I feel like it's been, and I'm, I, it's, I'm sounding negative about it. It's actually been wonderful to fight, to, to go, Hey man, these are my, these are my people. Uh-huh. And I'm going to, I'm going to pour my life into, into the, to those people and be poured into by those people. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to do ministry in the church world. I'm going to do it in the business world. I'm going to love my neighbor and man, I'm just going to try to just realize that you know what? What it did for me, the implosion was just makes makes me realize, gosh, like I just had a superior pure, a, a superiority kind of complex about me that I just I just really thought, man, if everybody would just 
get with it, you know, like me. Everybody could just, I mean, and not just believe like me, but make choices like me. Um, boy, I just, I have, by God's grace alone, and it's, it's not like it's not a battle every day because it is. I just lost that. I just think people are doing the best they can with the tools they have. Hmm. And I, my job is to show up and be the presence of Christ. Um, and that looks a lot like listening. That looks a lot like um, serving. Looks a lot less like talking, which is what I used to do um, all the time. And so I'm just, that's, that, that it, you know, that's what I've been trying to work on this year. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I resonate with a couple things that you've said. For one, uh, uh, my circle of friends is so much smaller than it was. Uh, you know, like you, I was, um, you know, my phone was always dinging and my email was always full. Uh, and yeah, a lot of those people went away. And I don't want to... Um, you know, I don't want to just say that it was because they were looking for me to help them get somewhere, although for sure I I did that. I, I'm I'm sure you did that too. Like I helped a lot of people get books published or get speaking gigs or whatever. And I, I no longer had that uh, platform. But also I was radioactive. You know what I'm saying? And in the church world, mm-hmm. and you were too. Um, yeah. It, it's hard for somebody else who's trying to build a platform and share their message to be associated with somebody who's got this uh, big black cloud hanging over them. So in some ways, I I do begrudge them that they bailed. And on, on the other side, I also totally understand it. And I'm sure that I've done the same oh, yeah. thing to people, you know. Oh, um, yeah. And I know I did the same thing to people. And so absolutely. I mean... And, and the other thing is, on a, on a more human side, people really don't know what to do when someone is suffering. Like, yeah, that's do right. I call you? Do I call you? Am I bothering you? Is everybody calling you? Um, do I back away? And then, and then if I back away too far, can I ever come back? I mean, I just think it's hard for people to know what to do. And I, yeah. I just give so much grace. I'm like, I, I've had to work through bitterness with some people. I actually did a retreat. Well, forgiveness retreat, which I had never done before, to to let go of some of that. Um, but man, I just I get it. Like I understand it. I've done it myself. I'll, I hope. I mean, I'll probably do it again. I don't want to, but I'll probably um, do that. You know, that at least in my heart again. So, yeah. I mean, people are doing the best they can. You know, you talk about that superiority complex. I'll tell you um, <laughs> when you're. <laughs> When your ex-wife posts on the internet uh, the part of your uh, psychological evaluation from your custody fight in which you get called a narcissist by the, by the therapist, it's, uh, that's a humbling takedown. And I remember Bro, I, read, I read that. I, I could not believe that, that was, was brutal. That was far. That was brutal. No, but Darren, I remember sitting in my therapist's office. And saying, am I a narcissist? And she said, she said, Tony, I don't wake up in the morning and think I want to climb into a pulpit, clip on a microphone and tell people how to live their lives. And I don't wake up in the morning thinking I'm going to write a book telling people what God is like. She goes, 
the kind of people who do what you do are obviously narcissists. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like t- that that shouldn't surprise you. How 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 had you not seen that before? How did it take this this uh this public humiliation for you to realize, yeah, you're a narcissist. I, you know, this is not how most people live their lives. Most people dread having to climb into a pulpit and talk into a microphone and you can't wait to do it, you know? Uh, so coming to terms with some of that. And then of course, having that taken away, uh, that's tough, man. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, that's tough. It's like losing a limb or something. Uh, that you used to, you know, th- throw a curveball with, and all of a sudden, can't. Not only can you not throw a curveball, you don't even have your right arm anymore. Is is kind of how it felt a little bit. I'm so glad you just brought baseball because we, we share multiple loves. But, but yeah, I, you got I, there's like a three legged stool. I think I think it's theology, baseball, and hunting. So you know, we need we need everybody to know that. Hey, that's so true. And you sent me a you sent me a picture this week. Of you talking to Whitey Herzog, and of course, his name everybody spits when they say his name up here because after the after the eighty seven World Series, he said that the Twins like turn the air conditioners on when the Twins were at bat and turn them off when the Cardinals were at bat. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he said that. <laughs> <laughs> He's a character, man. Is that right? I told you a story. I mean, I got a great story for all the yeah. baseball people. What? What? So I was the chaplain for the St. Louis Cardinals for five years, and so I got to go to all all these um, different kind of cardinal events. And you know, we have multiple Hall of Famers that are still alive uh, that do events and fantasy camps. And so anyway, I literally got to have dinner with Whitey. A, oh. a three-hour dinner, and I, and and it was just like he lives to entertain. So I would just literally—it was just like quest. I'm just asking questions. Well, tell me about this, and tell me about that, and let me. Do. And one of the funniest things he he said, or he didn't say it, but somebody else at the table said, uh, "Whitey, tell him about uh, tell him about Sunday afternoons on home stands." And he got this big smile, and he said, "You tell him." He's like, uh, "Whitey would intentionally if if if, if the weather was nice." And in other words, what happens is, you know, you do the homestand, the, the weekend series, then you take Monday off and then you'll do like a Tuesday, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday. Right. Um, a lot of times that would happen or the game would be Monday night and it would be a Sunday afternoon game, depending on. Almost always. Yeah, right. get, a lot of Sunday afternoon games. Yeah. Yeah. So he would intentionally get thrown out so he could go fishing. <laughs> <laughs> so you have another half day of fishing. I love it. And I mean. It, I mean, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I just think oh, dude, awesome. there are there are similar stories in Minnesota of Bud Grant, the legendary Minnesota Vikings coach, duck hunting on Sunday mornings of home games. Uh, wow! <laughs> yeah, that was that guy is a hardcore hardcore outdoorsman, particularly duck hunter. Uh, he's like 94 and he still does fly in duck hunting trips up in Manitoba every year, that kind of thing. So, wow. That's awesome. He's man. A t- he was a tough dude, man. What a tough man. That guy was. Yeah, of course he was <laughs> famous for, you know, not let no sideline heaters in the out right. when the Vikings played outside and they couldn't wear undershirts and they all had to stand at attention with their helmets under their left arm for the, uh, national anthem. And yeah, he was a, he was a hardcore dude. Uh, so tell me about um in these 
in this time when you've kind of been rebuilding your life, how has the outdoors and, you know, things like hunting and fishing, how, how have they been powerful for you? Oh man. Well, it's interesting. My, my hunting story kind of starts sad because, so I grew up in Southern Illinois, which is like, um, about two hours Southeast of St. Louis. So we're talking five and a half hours from Chicago. So way okay. South, um, in the country, my dad developed this, uh, 80 acre subdivision, um, surrounded by hunting clubs, goose clubs. Hmm. So we had back in the day, um, you guys, you know, you had these geese fly over <laughs> from Canada yeah, yeah. over where you are. And they would fly literally to Southern Illinois because that's where kind of the break line would be from uh, the water freezing all, all winter. So oh, sure. Have right. all, all these geese, I mean, it, at, at, at one time, this is the early eighties. It was the capital. In fact, like two of my buddies are literally world uh, champion goose callers oh from back gosh. in the day. Awesome. Several of them built amazing businesses, went on to do crazy things around the hunting game. And then the migratory patterns changed and they don't get as many geese anymore. But, um, but I grew up around all that, but my dad was severely absent from my life and mm. he was also abusive. And so, but he had these woods and he would, um, you know, he would, uh, be developing, you know, um, part of the woods, you know, there were the houses and then, and then there was a whole part of the woods that was like untamed and, he bought me for my 12th birthday, a three wheeler. I don't know if you ever had one of those. Death oh, traps. I did. Honey. They look super dangerous. <laughs> if you look at them now yeah. and you're like, can you believe people? They're like big balloony oh. tires too, right? Oh man. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, I got one. And so we made trails through those woods and okay. I would literally go there in a lot of ways to get away from my dad. Um, and, but, and then, and then all my buddies would be hunting, but dad would never take me hunting. So we had trappers on our land that would trap animals and use them for their pelts. And um, there were arrow. We were always looking for arrowheads. And I found this cool like axe that a that a you know one of the First Nations people had, had made. It was like a smooth. It, it was a rock that they had like carved around like to a sharp edge, and it held it. On. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. Um, you know, in the woods. And so I would escape to the woods. Well. When all this stuff went down, my buddy has about, you know, 500 acres um, that he, you know, he literally farms it for deer. Um, he's got sunflowers on that for dove. We hunt turkeys. And he would let me come out there and work and and hunt. And, man, it was just it was absolutely mm. critical to my my healing. Um, there's something about the woods for me. And and I listen, I do yoga and I do. I do um, all kinds of, you know, practices to relax. I, there is nothing like being in the woods for me. It does something to my soul. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I really don't know where I would be. In fact, I told my wife, you know, with all this stuff, I know I'm sure you've been this way, Tony, living on screens and Zoom calls and podcasts and which is all, you know, it's wonderful, but I'm like, I have got to get back to the woods. Like, yeah. And so li literally next week I'm going to get to go, um, fishing and, and, uh, and get, get some woods time and hopefully do some turkey hunting. It, it just, 
it's just the place it's been the place of healing for me and continues to be that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's the exact same for me. I mean, it's really why I started this podcast and why I'm doing more and more writing about the outdoors than I really am about, you know, theology or the different, the, the other things I'm trained in to, to write about. I'm, I'm more interested in exploring what it, it was, what's it, what it's been uh, about the woods. that's so healing Te- Tell me about that for you. Um, you know, there's something about the woods. You say, what do you think it is spiritually or theologically about being out there that's been healing for you in a trying time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, I think I think of Psalm 19.1, that, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and the skies display his handiwork. And, you know, like throughout, I, I'm a big Psalms guy. Like since last four years, I've lived in the Psalms. And it seems mm-hmm. like, you know, David's running through the desert, through the woods, through, I mean, he, those are born out of a time in the outdoors in so many ways, so many of those. And I just think there's something about, man, I mean, I, 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 I think we're in some ways, I mean, this sounds... I think we are meant to be in the woods. I think there, um, there's something about like the untouched or the the lightly touched terrain um, that is mostly molded by things other than human beings that awakens um, something in us. And I don't really understand it. I, mm-hmm. I told you on this, I sound like a panentheist when I talk about this, but I'm just like, there's something about it that I think there's an energy to it that yeah. I, I just think, you know, I would say it this way. I would say it awakens um, things in me that are, are dormant or, or have, have almost have died when I go there. And there's something about the hustle and bustle. And I live in a city, you know, you live in a city, like it's, it's wonderful. I love every, all the conveniences and the, you know, all the stuff, all the stuff a city offers, but, but man, I think you lose something in, in your soul. Um, if you don't go to the, if you don't, if you don't get out of the city and I, I don't, it's a mystical transcendent, uh, hard to articulate thing that people, if you know, you know, and if you don't know, you need to know. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I, uh, yeah, I, I've, I too have sometimes, uh, you know, had a hard time articulating what it is exactly the magic about it. It's interesting. Do you like when you say, "Oh, I sound like a pantheist"? I mean, for listeners who don't know, in in the traditions from which you and I come, being called a pantheist would be negative a negative thing. It would be an insult right. to be considered a pantheist. Um, but the theologian I did my doctoral work on is a guy named Jürgen Moltmann, who comes out of the same mm-hmm. Reformed tradition that you and I both come from. Uh, and he he unapologetically calls himself a panentheist. Which, yes, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the difference, um, and I'd love to hear you talk about that theologically a little bit, because the way you know uh, if a pantheist says god is everything like the trees the grass the people the rocks the air it, that is god um what moltmann would say is pan uh, panentheism you throw that little en in the middle of that word and it means in 
yeah. in Greek. And so it's God is in everything. Yep. And God's, you know, the way he talks about it is God's love. God, you've already brought up the Trinity. He says God's Trinitarian love is so abundant in that relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit that it overflows that relationship and basically spills all over the rest of creation. So that God's love, or another way to say it is like God's love embraces into God's self all things. So you can't look at a thing and not see, I mean, it, you should be able to look at a thing and see God in it. And that's not to say God is the tree, but that God is in the tree or God is, yeah. um, you know, in the the field as you're sitting there in a deer stand. And I wonder, like, I, you're a deer hunter, right? Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Um, it, it's a very, that's a, you know, deer hunting is such a solitary meditative kind of hunting for those of us in the Midwest. I, I did my first elk hunt last fall and it's really a stock, you know, it's a stock and call kind of hunt, but man, sitting in a deer stand in the woods, that is a, that is hard to do. I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I love what Moltmann said there too. I think, and honestly, I mean, if, don't you think, Tony, I don't want to go down a theological trail too too far, but it, it looked, I mean, my reading, my buddy's getting his PhD in some early church father stuff, some nuance that I can't ever remember. But, um, you know, the early church fathers seem to be a little panentheistic, Christian panentheistic in the, in the way they would approach certain things. So I do think there's something to it. I mean, I don't want to lose, I, I wouldn't call myself a panentheist, but I do think when I walked, you know, with a light on, at you know 4 30 in the morning and i'm walking down that trail there is a there is a fear you know partly because you know we got mountain lions uh in our in that we've seen we've we had a couple mountain lions a couple years ago so we've got that going we got bobcats wow yeah um, but but even but even you so you get up in your stand and there's a bobcat above you it's that's not gonna go that's not gonna be a good day um, but, but just the idea of the, the awe of the woods, the reverence, the stillness, the, the fact that you're, you, the darkness that you can, I mean, your little light can shine your, you know, you can see your steps, but there's something about that. Like, and, and just, yeah, you are still, you're waiting. And, and if you move too much, especially in bow season, you know, and in, in, in rifle season, like, you know, like it's so cold, we've got. You know, I feel bad saying this. The hunters, some of the hunters will excommunicate me from the club. But, you know, we've got heat, some heated towers that we can avail ourselves of. And you're inside. You can make a little bit more noise. When you're out there up in a, you know, tree, every movement could cost you <laughs> because they they hear you, they smell you. And so you've got to, yeah, there's something about that that I just, I, I love, you know, I hunt ducks and quail and, um, you know, I want to hunt pheasants with pheasants with you, so we got to yeah, figure come that on, out. Bro. Stuff, Let's stuff do it. You, but, but like, there's something about deer hunting that I think is. It, it, and number one, it's the first thing I ever did. It's the first type of hunting I ever did. So there's nostalgia there. But yeah. the stillness and the awe of the woods in the morning, like that, and even you go. So you go twice, right? You go in the morning, and then you go at night. So you experience the darkness twice. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's interesting too. Did. Did your dad introduce you to deer hunting? 
No, he didn't. Um, actually, okay. a kind of a surrogate, a surrogate dad did. Uh, a guy that was one of my spiritual mentors. Um, he he was the one that really uh, kind of helped me uh, experience that. Yeah, I my dad was not a hunter either, and um, I too have done some writing recently about my somewhat tortured relationship with my dad. He, my dad died two years ago. And, um, you know, it's interesting since he died, both of my brothers and my mom have said dad, he was so much harder on you than the two of us, you know, and nobody really knows why that was. If there was something in my, in my, in me that triggered my dad to, um, have a little more rage and anger toward me than he ever did toward my brothers. I think maybe it was because he, I mean, this is just a wild guess, but maybe he thought I could take it because I was, you know, I'm, I'm an Enneagram eight and I'm strong mm -hmm. and outspoken. And uh, so he thought he could rage at me. And I think he maybe thought my brothers were a little more tender or sensitive. I don't know. Have you, You've obviously done some thinking about this. And I mean, what you've alluded to in the stuff I've read from you and, and, this, and when I've heard you talk about it is that you think it was some of the unresolved stuff with your dad that led to, to your implosion at uh, mm -hmm. the church you planted. Like, where, you, where do you sit with that now? Is your dad still alive? No, he's not. He, uh, yeah, it's interesting <clears throat> because... You know, it's like I, I literally my dad was a big fisherman and he and he he actually helped develop the um, the largest residential lake in the state of Illinois. He, he, he was an excavator and a builder and he literally like it was a man made lake. They dammed up some rivers back in the late 60s and then he helped build the first houses around that lake and even helped consult on some of the the way the, the lake was laid out. <clears throat> So I was able to do a owner finance deal with one of his buddies to buy a property there on that lake. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so then he got really sick. And so the last like five months of his life, I took care of him in that. I got, he got to live down there on the lake. Okay. Um, so, so it's funny, like, you know, looking back, you know, you go to this therapy and, and the guy, one day I was sitting in therapy and I'm like, oh my God. I bought that whole lake house trying to rekindle my relationship with my dad. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Didn't really know. Didn't know like, it at the wow. time. Didn't yeah. know it. I had no clue. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think I was always trying to um, reach out to him. But man, he had a horrific upbringing. Passed around, physically abused, probably sexually abused. If, if I'm reading the tea leaves right after, you know, you've been mm. in ministry and dealt with people, you kind of, you kind of look at yeah. things and go, yeah, that's pretty likely, um, you know, and so, <clears throat> but, you know, really hard. We did reconcile at the end of his life, but he died about uh, eight months before my implosion. Really? And so actually, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, what I should have done at the time when he died, I should have went to our leaders and said, hey, I got I got to I got to get out then. I got to I got to do a sabbatical. I got to get out. And instead, because there was so much conflict in the church, I felt like if I got out that that would fester and I would lose power. And um, and I so I stayed in and, and, and I 
I'm not blaming that at all, but it's my fault for not, for not paying attention to my body and paying attention to my soul. Um, but yeah, that was all connected and in a weird way. Hmm. You, you went through a, uh, I mean, another thing you've talked about is you went through, a. uh, what in your circles are, is called a restoration process. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny because I had spent so much of my uh, public career really railing against church bureaucracies like denominations and stuff like that. And then when, uh, you know, stuff came up out about me on the internet, I ironically wished that I'd had some kind of bigger organization or network who could come alongside me and say, we're going to, you know, we're going to look at these accusations and we're going to help restore you to ministry. I had nothing like that. I had nobody who could vouch for me. Um, Mm -hmm. You weren't necessarily in a, I mean, you were in a denominational system, but is, is that how, like, how did you, how did that process go for you? And are you still in it? Yeah. So, um, the elders of the church were very gracious to me in that they, they, um, offered that a a, a severance and, and really just helped, helped me do that. And there were, there were a a group of pastors and counselors that kind of walked with me in that process. Um, and, and really, it was, it was a 26-month process. So the answer to that last question is no. As of, it'll be two years um, in May. So not, uh-huh. not right around this time, two years. Uh, wow. I've, I've, I've been released from that process uh, after 26 months. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was horrible. Like in some ways, uh, every restoration process is imperfect. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I had a kind of one of those Holy Spirit moments actually in the woods, uh, now that I think about mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. where I just kind of felt like God said, I'm perfecting you through this imperfect process. Hmm. And so I really hung on to that because there was some parts of it that were really hard. Um, but Pastor Greg Surratt, who kind of has become my pastor and um, just amazing, uh, amazing guy who's helped restore and help a lot of young guys who have made mistakes and whatnot. And, and then uh, the guys at cross point ministries, rich Plass and Jim Cofield. Um, yeah. I did about 200 hours of counseling in those 26 months. Um, and a lot of stuff with my wife and I. Um, and so it was, it was, uh, it was wonderful and it was awful at probably as it should have been. Uh, did you, did you say, did you think about you? Well, I mean, I, I think I probably know the answer. Did you think about leaving ministry? And if the answer is yes, I, you thought about leaving ministry. Why? Why stay in ministry when you could have just hit the reset button and started a, a new career doing something else where you would not have had this yeah. baggage following you on the internet or whatever? Well, I kind of tried. <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, I really, uh, yeah, I did. I worked, I worked for a business guy for that after that first year, which I did no ministry and just all counseling that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second year I, I mainly worked for a business guy. And then I worked a little bit for, um, a church, the church, <clears throat> but it, 
Tony, I just couldn't. I mean, it, I don't know how to say it any other way. I mean, I'm, I always tell people, we used to tell people this. I mean, I mean, this is a common thing we, we all share. Like, hey, if you can, if you can do anything else. <laughs> do it. Do it. Like, do it. <laughs> yeah. and, and what we're speaking to is the emotional resonance or pull yeah. to do that. And, and so I would tell people that all the time. Well, you know, it, when all this happened, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to. I mean, my tribe. Um, was very unforgiving and did not do restoration oh. um, very well at all. And so um, I'm just like, well, I'm done this tribe. And, uh, you know, I, I'm done. You know, that's what I thought. And I don't want to do this. And, and it just the pull, I just felt like God was just saying, I'm, I've called you to do this. It's going to look different. Um, but I've called you to do this. That metaphor in, in Exodus four, where Moses, God says, what's in your hand? And he throws it down. It's a, it's a staff. Uh, he says, what, what's, and he's like, throw it down. That turns into a snake. And the guy's like, pick it up by the tail, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I felt like. I had to throw ministry down or it was thrown down for me, whatever you want to say, or I caused it to be thrown down and I had to pick it up a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I still do, I do business stuff. I do uh, church stuff. I, but I, I, it's in my blood. It's, a, it's, I think I'm, I mean, I'll use the word called. I think I'm called to it. I don't know if that's my whole life, but at least right now. And I really, and like, you know, like you, we spent several years trying to help pastors navigate all kinds of cultural change and theological questions. And I just love pastors. I mean, they're my Mm -hmm. heroes. Uh, I just think they're wonderful. And I just, you know, that's why we started that pastors collective thing, Greg and I, it's like, man, pastors are burning out. Um, and we want to help them avoid and recover from uh, avoid or recover from burnout because they you know, they are on the front lines and, and they, and as you know, seminary doesn't always exactly equip us with the realities of ministry. Um, so I want to be one of those. I hate it because I'd like to still be a builder, but I'd like, I'm kind of a dad now or an older brother. And I just want to be a good older brother or, or dad to some of these younger men and women who are serving God on the front lines. Yeah. If it okay, you work at a church that's what in South Carolina. Yeah, it, 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 but do you still live in St. Louis? I do. So I explain both, that. I live in that, both that that's that's confusing. That's going to be confusing to people. How do you pastor a church uh, that's you know a thousand miles away from where you live? Yeah. Well, I'm a teaching pastor, and so I teach about once a month. And then I lead a couple different teams, uh, help lead a couple different teams. And for non for, for non evangelicals, teaching pastor means what we would call as a preaching pastor, a preaching minister. Right, yeah. right. right. Okay. Yeah. So, and so, okay. yeah. So, so I so I come in there. I'm basically there. It, it depends. Uh, it's probably an average of a week, a month. Um, like I'm going there on Monday, and I'll be there till the next Sunday. Um, and, but then I'm on the, you know, we're on, I mean, I think we've seen this during the, the COVID-19 thing. I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, the distance thing can actually work with teams. Well, yeah. we've been doing that for, you know, a couple of years. And, um, so I'm not the, I'm not the lead minister or the senior pastor. Um, and, and I don't have to oversee a bunch of staff people. Um, I, it's more team, I, I'm leading more teams versus managing 
I don't know how you could manage from a far like that. I mean, maybe you could, maybe you could, but it, it's more, uh, it's more team project based kind of stuff I do. So you're um, not, yeah. you're not like doing pastor pastoral care. Like you're not visiting people in the hospitals really, or doing weddings and funerals and that kind of stuff that a lot of, because your church is extraordinary, right? I mean, the church you work at, it's, it's almost yeah. 20,000 people. So it's not, right. the, the, it's not the, you know, the average listener of this podcast, if they go to church is going to go to a church of between 50 and 150 people where there's exactly. one pastor who does everything. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. You're this on a, a bit, yeah, huge totally staff. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's yeah, a totally yeah. Different thing. But I do, I do, uh, I do, I do weddings. Uh, I do, uh-huh. I do visit people. And then when I'm in St. Louis, which is the majority of the time, we have a house church and we have, okay. uh, so I am constantly like right now, I mean, I'm preparing for two, uh, I'm doing a wedding, I'm doing premarital counseling. Uh, we've got a couple that is, we got two, we got two couples that we're doing like heavy duty marriage counseling with. Um, and so my wife is involved in that. So I'm in the middle of it, man. And, um, yeah. I just, I just don't get paid to do ministry here. Like I, uh, like I did in the past. It's all, it's all volunteer house church stuff. Right. And now when you're at, at the big church, you're, you say you're teach you'll teach once, you'll, you'll preach once a month. And then, I, cause there are so many campuses, are you live in one place and then it's video streamed elsewhere or is it on video at all yeah. of the sites or how's that work? Yeah, it's it's the whole <clears throat> video thing. Yeah, so you preach. They have fourteen different churches as, as a part of their network, and so you'll preach. Who, uh, whoever pre- preaches from the bit the the broadcast location, the large uh, has twenty six hundred seats. Okay, that one, and then it's piped into everywhere else live stream. So it's live. So every church, like the song before the sermon, has to. End at the exact right time for the video to flip on and the the sermon to start. It's there's a little more wiggle room than that. Okay, it's not quite as mechanical, but 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 yes, I mean there definitely is a there's definitely a clock. There's definitely a yeah. Wow, because I know of other places where they um they record the sermons in advance, like in a studio, and then I've right. heard of you know then the the senior pastor will be sitting there in the front row watching his own sermon that he recorded on, on Friday afternoon or whatever, which also yeah. seems a little odd, but I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's a little weird in the, in the, you know, I, I, I get it. And I, and, and, and in many ways, I mean, I think we're seeing with this, what happened with COVID. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it can touch people. It, it really, it really is effective. Um, but I do think the incarnational in one place, you're looking them in the eyes, um, you know, is would be my preference, which is why I love our house church so much, because it's literally, you know, it is what it sounds like. It's yeah, people in a house. But you, <laughs> yeah, do you, so. you, you've got to miss, I mean, what we haven't really touched on, but maybe people know about you is that you started a church in St. Louis called The Journey that was super successful. And that's where, yeah, that's where we cross paths early because you were just in that cohort of young Gen X pastors who had started successful churches. And I mean, that must've been oh, very We were different. learning from you guys. We were learning from you and Doug at Solomon's porch. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 
that's that's how I I mean I I was like you guys were the and and you know that Chris C would have been in that group Tim yeah Peele, right right uh right. you know just the early guys doing that Rob and man it was like yeah please. I remember calling and going I think I tried to call Doug and Doug Doug pawned me off on you so they, yeah, they, yeah I think that's probably right <laughs> that, sound, that sound like your working relationship that sounds exactly um, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Do you miss but the yeah, journey? Do you miss those people? Oh yeah, and what's wonderful is God has done some amazing reconciliation with the leaders there, that's and great. so <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And you know, we uh, we do. They're doing great. So excited about um, just the mission and how they've responded to the crisis. And absolutely, it's it's a. Uh, it was hard for a long time, man. I got to, you know, yeah. I'm not going to lie. It was really hard, but it's by God's grace and, and just a lot of good humility. I think all the way around, it's, it's really cool. Tell me what you're, um, what you're up to with your three minute sermons on YouTube. Well, you know, it, it started as a creative outlet. I'm like, you know how it is, man. When you get to preach, you're like, I got to, oh, yeah. I got all this stored up energy. Yep. That was one piece. The other piece of it was I, I started hanging out. I told you I was working at business uh, people and I started realizing that number one, like, and I knew this, but like, you know, obviously most people don't go to church, which I knew, but even the people who go to church and I'm talking like business people, creatives don't really connect with it that well, or they don't, or because of their, their travel, um, you know, their, their kids sport, they just, they're just not consistent. And, yeah. and, and a lot of times it's just like, it's so, I don't know. I, I learned this doing chapel uh, stuff for the Cardinals and the Rams over the years. Like, man, you got like 10 minutes mm. at the most mm -hmm. and you better have, you better have no more than one point if you hope to connect. So I started thinking about all those things and going, what if I did this thing that just put the cookies on the low shelf uh, I didn't really prepare for it other than maybe looking at the passage five minutes before. And I just off the cuff just started. And that, so that's how it started. And that's pretty that's much awesome. what it is. It's a little more, it's a little more organized now because I'll do like eight in a shoot. Uh, but it just started like that. Um, but it's, there's hardly any prep. I mean, it, and, and it, you can tell when you look at it, you're like, yeah, oh, that was sloppy. And it wasn't quite I saw right. I watched one today, bro. I watched one today that was four minutes and 22 seconds. Oh, yeah. So, I, I'm way <laughs> over. Yeah. It's, <laughs> they it's might be creeping up. Brand, oh, brand confusion. <laughs> what I, I remember, which is, I mean, I've never done like a pro sports chapel or whatever, but I remember the first time I was brought in by some guys in my church. I was just a youth pastor and they, you know, I got up in the rotation to go preach it in the prison with them and they would go once a month to Stillwater prison and uh, they brought me in and I was so scared. Oh my gosh. I, my heart was in my throat. And of course I had the seminary, you know, I had a three point sermon set and I could tell halfway through point one, these guys were done. <laughs> they were done yeah. with me. <laughs> and I just was like, I didn't, I, at that point, I didn't have the wherewithal to think of my feet and adjust on the fly, you know, and, and make it a one point sermon. So I just powered through baby. <laughs> I did all three points. Yeah. I just like preached a 40 minute sermon in the, in the prison chapel, that was such a disaster. Oh my gosh. And, and maybe, and I'm guessing you didn't get invited back. 
Exactly. You're right. You want to know what? I never did get invited back. <laughs> um, okay. Before we go, tell me uh, where where's your it, it, describe for me and our listeners. Where's your next hunt? Are you going to go turkey hunting and tell us where you'll be, where you'll set up, um, what time of day? Are you going to have your kids with you? You know, what's your what's your next yeah. hunt? I think it's a turkey hunt. I'm hoping it's it's uh, either Saturday in <clears throat> in Missouri or potentially Tuesday in South Carolina. Uh, and and if it's uh, and if it's uh, and I think it's probably going to be Tuesday. And my son is actually going to be there. This will be his first. And I, honestly, I don't even really know. I I hunted quail on this land a couple months ago. Actually, he and I did. Mm-hmm. In uh, <clears throat> kind of a little bit more upstate South Carolina around uh, Spartanburg. Um, I really don't know the setup. Uh, and I'm kind of, my buddy is essentially a non-paid professional guide. I mean, the guy's amazing. So I'm kind of in his hands. But um, yeah, I, my, my, my great joy right now is I have four kids. Okay. Um, and my son, who's um, uh, about to be 14, has really gotten the bug. And so... We've gone quail hunting, duck hunting, um, and uh, he'll be deer hunting this, you know, in the in the fall. But th- so really, I'm stoked about him kind of experiencing all this. And and then my oldest daughter, uh, who's actually uh, 20, she's in college, uh, it showed some interest too. And then my youngest daughter as well. So we're we're kind of making it a family uh, family affair. And my wife is slightly supportive, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That's awesome. Slightly supportive. I love that. Yeah, man, my 15-year-old is my youngest, and he is he's the outdoorsman of the group. And uh, my the, the thing about a turkey license in Minnesota is the adult turkey license is only good for one season, the tag. And then if you don't fill the tag, you can hunt in the fifth season. But uh, the youth tag is good for all six weeks. Oh, nice. So, yeah, so we're going back up tomorrow morning, and he's going out. Um, we got, we've been getting this Tom on a, on a trail camera, and he'll be out there. I'll probably sit with him, but he, I, can't, I won't be able to shoot one, but he will. And he yeah. cannot get enough, man, and he cannot wait to get his fishing boat in the lake and get out there it's That's isn't awesome. that fun it's so fun yeah you just so need to maybe, leave that fool just leave that fool in the woods till he can find some that's what i do just like yeah six weeks man survival <laughs> to fitness make it happen especially with schools all online i'm like can you i wonder exactly if you can, can you do your school from inside the ground blind uh i am trying so hard to get to let the church record my sermon from my deer stand i mean oh, i think on, if i could figure that one out brother I mean, I've, I've, I've lived the life. <laughs> you never have to go back in the church again. If they'll do that, just set That's up a right. GoPro, uh, hanging out. Uh, <laughs> that'd be awesome. Well, it's been great. I'd love to, uh, we, we really got to make that connection. So I, uh, I'd love to Turkey hunt on the East coast. That would be amazing. And, uh, right. we'll get you, I'll tell you, it's the Cadillac. The Cadillac of all hunts is a pheasant hunt in South Dakota, bro. I can yeah, I, I can tell you that it is what I dream about <laughs> when I lie awake in bed at night. I dream about South Dakota pheasant hunts. It's something else. So we'll get you and your boy out there, and we'll do that. Yeah, I can't wait. Well, hey, thanks a million for coming on, Darren, and uh, we'll definitely have you on again, hopefully sometime from uh, from a hunt together. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Sounds great, Tony. Thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. Thanks.